Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5 as we continue our journey through the book of Galatians together. This morning we're going to look at verses 19 down through 21 as we continue to see what God has in store for us in the book of Galatians. Let me read those verses to us. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I have told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And Father, we just humbly ask for the grace and the help of your Holy Spirit as we continue in our worship by submitting ourselves to the truth and the authority of the Word of God. Lord, we believe your Word is your will. And so, as always, we ask you to give us an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to us through your Word of God this morning, that we would hear a timely word from you and that you'd speak truth to us that we need to hear. Uh, We desire to hear what you want to say, Lord, so give us expectant hearts, and we ask that you would speak to us again through the power and the ministry of your Spirit as we study the Scripture, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, in a day when many feel like it's sort of their right or entitlement to just create their own moral code of what's right or what's wrong in their own opinion— Where is it that we can find clarity regarding what is actually sin? And of course, when we say sin, we're simply discussing what is wrongdoing in God's sight. Not what's right or wrong in our sight or our estimation of what's wrong. Not necessarily what the culture says is right or wrong. But where do we get clarity regarding what is sin and wrong in God's sight. And the answer, of course, is always by what God's Word says and clearly identifies to us is wrong and therefore indicates it is sinful. And this is a passage, I hope you can tell by just the reading, that indicates such to us. It details quite extensively, if you notice, all the different terms of things mentioned there, of things that are sinful in God's sight. Uh, that when we succumb to such things, we are not walking in the Spirit in a way that's pleasing to God, but instead we are actually indulging the sinful nature, what we call the flesh, the fleshly nature of our own sinfulness instead. And it gives a very specific list, those we're going to see, not an exhaustive list, not a complete list, but a pretty detailed list. God takes the time by the Holy Spirit to go quite in-depth and detail to give us a very clear picture so that we don't have to wonder what is sinful and what is not. In fact, he even warns, we'll see as we get to the last section of these verses, that people be not mistaken regarding their spiritual condition if they live in a life practice of 
these sinful things that are mentioned here. Remember the background in this last section of the letters we've said, Paul is now addressing sort of the practical outworkings of the spiritual life. He's taught a good amount of doctrine, how we're saved by grace and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's our faith alone in Christ alone that makes us righteous and right in God's sight. It's not by works. We don't earn God's approval. He's talked about the importance of being led by the Spirit in contrast to living under a a set of uh, rules and following a checklist of religious lifestyle and discussing now what it really means to practically live out this thing we call a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a follower of him and how to be directed not by a list or a set of rules, but to be led internally by the Spirit of the Lord who lives within us working inside and guiding us with his desires and showing us from within our conscience what is right and what is wrong as the Spirit gives us clarity on that. In fact, he's already issued two warnings in this very area. If you glance back up into verse 13 of this chapter, he said there, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, that is, freedom to live after the Spirit following Christ, not under the law. You've been called to liberty, but he said there, only don't use that liberty or freedom you have now as an opportunity for the flesh. That is, don't take advantage of the grace of God and try and use it as a license for sin, as an opportunity to just indulge your flesh or your sinful nature. Then again in verse 16, he said to us, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we talked about, again, how the flesh is a reference to this sinful nature that we all have within us from birth. We've received it from Adam, the very first human being who fell into sin and lost his relationship with God, became a sinful person, and therefore has passed on to every one of us born since. This natural inclination towards doing what's wrong, this fallen nature, this nature of Adam, which is uh, sort of drawn magnetically towards doing that which is wrong, towards rebelling against God, doing what's selfish, and doing ultimately what we call sinful to satisfy our sinful nature. So that's what the flesh is always a reference to. The spirit, of course, refers to the new nature that we receive from God if and when we choose to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. That when we receive Christ by faith, the spirit of the Lord enters inside of us, makes us come alive spiritually. We receive a relationship with God, but we also receive, thankfully, a new nature a new nature that gives us power to live differently so that we don't have to be governed by our sinful nature, the flesh, but now we have the freedom to walk in the power of the Spirit to do what is right and righteous in God's sight, and the Spirit gives us new desires to please God, to live righteously as we should. But there is this constant battle, Paul said to us there in verse 17, that the Christian experiences inside of do I let the Spirit of God govern me and rule over me, or am I going to succumb to the rulership of my sinful flesh from the past, still trying to take control and get me to satisfy my sinful and fleshly desires? And so there's this conflict of two natures inside of the follower of Christ, where we're always wrestling within to some degree the old nature and the new nature, which will we allow to rule over us. And part of the Christian experience is this constant decision now because we have the freedom to choose to walk in the Spirit so that we no longer gratify the sinful desires of our fleshly nature. Now, in this section, 
Paul begins here to identify the difference and tell us what it looks like to be walking in the Spirit, we'll see that next time, as compared to what it looks like when we're fulfilling the desires of the flesh. He begins by first identifying the activity of the flesh, the sin nature, and he tells us what that looks like in our verses this morning. Notice in verse 19, he begins saying, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are. So notice, the works of the flesh, the works meaning the behaviors, the activities of the flesh, that is our sin nature, he says, notice the verse, are evident. That is, the word means they're obvious. They're not complicated to recognize. He says right here, by the power of the Spirit, these are evident and plain things. The works of the flesh, the activities of my sin nature, the Bible tells us they're clearly seen. They're able to be evident and known very easily and understood in regard to what they are, and he's now going to describe them. One translation renders this section, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. I think that says it quite directly. God is saying it's not complicated to identify what's sinful. We don't have to act like it's mysterious. God says it's honestly quite plain to see and understand if we're just willing to be humble and admit it rather than be proud and not acknowledge when we're doing what is sinful in God's sight. God specifically identicates some obvious things here that gives us actually a list, a quite extensive list of wrong things revealing what it looks like when a person is fulfilling the desires of their flesh rather than walking in the Spirit. These are clear-cut things which are evident sinful activities. He mentions, first of all, in this list, uses the term adultery. Uh, now, this term doesn't appear in some of the more modern translations. I think that's unfortunate because I think it's important to be there. That word adultery, of course, speaks of any physical interaction uh, of, of sexual nature with someone other than the person that we are married to, or the same, engaging in any sexual activity with someone who is married to another person. So adultery is any sexual activity with someone who is not my spouse other than my spouse, or it is as well, engaging in such with someone who's married to another person. That as well is causing them and cooperating with them in adultery. And from God's perspective, notice that is always wrong. There is never a justifiable reason from God's perspective in regards to those things uh, that are sinful. God never sees any basis for which this is permissible or allowable in any way. People may try and justify why they need to or how it happened or why they're engaged in an adulterous relationship, but in God's mind, it's always outside of his boundaries. It is always wrong. It is always selfish, incredibly. It's hurtful, and it is destructive to marriage relationships, which God takes very seriously and God sees as a very sacred thing. God's Spirit will never lead a person into an act of adultery. That is the act of the sinful nature and the sinful nature alone. The next term he mentions here in this list is fornication. And interesting, the original Greek there, the term is the word pornea. Now that should sound very familiar. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But the term pornea or fornication speaks of sexual immorality that is sinful or immoral sexual activity 
in a very broad sense, this term fornication, encompassing many wrong behaviors of indulging our sexual desires in an inappropriate way in God's sight that are outside of God's boundaries. Interesting, the word began originally in its use to be a term referring to the usage of a prostitute for your own selfish indulgences to fulfill your lusts for personal satisfaction. By Paul's day, it was, however, used as a term in a very broad sense to refer to any form of sexually immoral behavior, of satisfying your sexual desires in an improper way outside of God's design. So, of course, it would encompass premarital sex, that is, any sexual interaction or activity with a person that you are not legally married to. Uh, any activity that uh, causes a person to be sexually intimate with another is fornication. Again, God's boundary, and it is a clear-cut boundary from the Word of God for the free exercise of our God-given sexual desires and drives, God's boundary is very exclusive. It's within the limitation of a relationship commitment of a male and a female in the covenant relationship of marriage. That is the one relationship where God says sex is permissible, where all sexual expression and sexually intimate activity is allowable, and it's even actually important. It's intended as a gift to be exercised by the married couple for bonding, for procreation, for pleasure, and as a part of the marriage relationship. However, that being said, anything outside of that, any sexual activity with someone who we are not married to, is therefore fornication. It is this broad term of sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Very interesting, as the Bible cautions us in regards to sexual sin, premarital sex, or any general form of sexual sin, the Bible says it's not only a destructive sin in the sense of like all normal sins or a sin that hurts others, but the Bible actually says that it's actually a sin against our own body. That is a self-destructive sin. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit lifts it and says, look, this is one of the most personally self-destructive forms of sin is when we engage in any form of sin in regards to our sexual expression. First Thessalonians 4 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Notice abstinence was God's idea and it's God's will that you should abstain from sexual morality, that each of you should know how to possess or control his own vessel, that is his physical body, in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the heathen, that is the ungodly, he says, who don't know God. So again, First Thessalonians 4 tells us directly one of the places in the Bible where it specifically states this is the will of God. There's a few places in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit directly says, this is God's will. A lot of times Christians always want to know, what's God's will? Well, a few places it says, this is God's will, no question. This is God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you use abstinence. That is, you have the desire 
and the longing and the drive for it, that's normal, but you use abstinence. That is, you refrain and control the desire by staying in control of your own body as a vessel rather than exercising it outside of marriage where it is not God's design and it is sinful. Of course, this doesn't just apply to premarital sex. It Therefore, this term fornication would apply broadly to all other forms of sexual sin. So, of course, it then encompasses acts of homosexual behavior, of same-sex interaction and intimacy and romance that is sinful and wrong from God's perspective. God does not endorse or recognize homosexual behavior as acceptable or something as a permissible thing in his sight. He says it is wrong and violates his will. Romans chapter 1, speaking of homosexuality, says this. God says it's exchanging what is natural to do what is against nature. Against what is against nature. Again, the biology of a male and a female correspond. If you look at the anatomy of the way God's created us, and God says in his word, even the human body, the way it's designed, male, female, the anatomy matches. It's against nature when you put two people with the same anatomy together. God says it's exchanging what's natural for what is against nature. And he goes on to say in Romans 1, by indulging such, that is homosexual practice, it is a vile or corrupt passion. It's the fulfillment of a struggle in the sin nature. So it's the exercising of the flesh, a sinful, vile passion to want to go against nature, to be in a same-sex relationship, practicing homosexual behavior. The same, of course, applies to every other perverse form of sexual sin, incest, bestiality, or any other conduct outside of God's design. The Spirit of God, who's inspired the clearly written Word of God, which is His will, is never going to lead a person to contradict what God wrote in His Word. Because this is God's will. So we must be very careful. God has clearly addressed these things as the will of God in truth in his word. God is not ever going to lead a person to do something that violates what the truth of his word says. So it is wrong for a person ever to say that God is telling me to or God has made me. That's not true. It is an expression of the sin nature. It is an expression of our selfish indulgence of something our flesh is lusting after, but not something God would ever lead us into. The next term he uses there in our list is the word uncleanness. And that word uncleanness is a term that speaks of just internal filthiness of heart and mind, to be without morality in one's thinking, to have no moral basis to one's desires, to be corrupt, we might say, or perverted within just total uncleanness, that is, you know, becoming crude in your sexual outlook, having no sense of propriety, no healthy view. Instead, your mind is just polluted and your longings are perverse and they're just corrupted. You're enslaved like a sexual addict and governed by perversity. That's the idea of our word here. Interesting, Jesus even showed it's the issue of the heart and the mind where sexual sin actually has its origin and begins to stem from. Jesus spoke of how sexual sin always begins in the heart attitude and the fleshly longings and the mind, that that's where sexual sin actually begins, even before it's expressed outwardly in action. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his 
heart. So Jesus clearly says it's that lusting in the heart that already becomes the act of adultery, the sin from God's perspective, even before it's carried out in our actions. You know, remember our word we just mentioned a few moments ago, pornea? And I said that word should sound familiar, pornea from the Greek. Uh, that word pornea is where, of course, we get our English word today, pornography. It's a compound word. And pornography, the two words, pornea, which speaks of sexually sinful behavior, and graphe, or graphe, the second part of the word, speaks of, again, graphics or pictures. And so the word pornography speaks of utilizing images, whether it's picture or video, to indulge sinful, selfish activity. That is basically just, from God's perspective, sinful sexual practice. It's pornea. It's the using of pictures and graphics to basically sin sexually in a way that dishonors God and honestly harms ourselves and causes great destruction to others ultimately as well. The final term he mentions here regarding sort of sensual sins, if we might call this list that, is the word lewdness. And our word lewdness there speaks of shameless excess, just total absence of restraint. The idea there is just in regards to sexually immoral conduct, you just cast off all restraint altogether and you actually become brazen in your seductiveness or perverse behavior, just completely vulgar. Being just completely obscene, not just why privately do this over here and nobody knows about it, my little secrecy of my sexual indulgence of sin. This word lewdness speaks of just openly being brazen and crude. The idea is someone who just dresses in a seductive way, just outwardly, publicly, with no concern of any moral bearing for anyone else. Someone who behaves in a way that's just extremely uh, polluted and perverse, casting off all moral decency with no respect for others at all. And certainly we see, unfortunately, a lot of this that goes on in the culture. He then moves from kind of sensual sins to just other wrong ways of behaving sinfully in the way that we act as well. He goes on in our list here, verse 20, to then mention idolatry, which speaks of just an extreme admiration or devotion towards something or someone other than God himself. That's what idolatry is. It's when we give our primary allegiance and attention and our foremost efforts as well to serving something basically as our God. That's what idolatry is. We are created to worship, all of us are, and therefore everyone ends up worshiping something. Even if not God, everybody worships something. We are created by God's design to be people who worship. We need to worship something. That's the way God created us. But if we don't worship God, everybody has an idol. Everybody ultimately worships something. And there are many different forms of idolatry and many idols that people can worship. It comes in all different forms. You can have an idol of a, of a career. You can idolize another person. They can become your idol. You can be some, again, pleasure or some you know thing that's a pursuit in your life or some habit some life dominating sin something in this list and it becomes idolatry it's something that becomes the most important thing it's the master passion of your life the master passion of our life and what directs us should be the lord but when it is another thing then it's idolatry god says it is sin it is idolatry against God because it disregards God's rulership 
as the supreme one that we should give all authority and attention to, and idolatry dishonors God by making someone or something else more important than him, and therefore it's sinful. Now, good thing to ask ourselves, maybe just evaluating our hearts. Is it possible that maybe you've been struggling with allowing something in your life that has become very important to you, and certainly nothing wrong with people or things being important to us, but could it be possible, if you were to be genuine and evaluate your heart, that something that is very important to you, you've been struggling with maybe gravitating towards letting it almost become a form of idolatry, like an idol in your life. First Corinthians 10 says, flee from idolatry. First John 5, the elder man John says there to his listeners, keep yourself from idols. In other words, he was giving wisdom as an older man saying, look, guard yourself because it's easy to begin to let idols become established in your life and don't let it happen, John was saying. Beware of the sin of idolatry. It can often be subtle, but something that's very real. The next term he mentions in verse 20 is the sin he mentions, the work of the flesh. He refers to it as sorcery. Now, that term there, sorcery, speaks of the use of magic and spells in occultic practices to channel supernatural spirits. It's actually the effort of, as they would originally, of using potions to summon spirits to offer their power and let a person come in touch with the forces of the supernatural. And in the Bible, sorcery was always connected to demonic activity when it was described from the Old Testament through the New Testament. It was always connected to what was demonic or of the devil. And therefore, it was something that God always warned strongly against and its controlling and destructive consequences upon a life because it was coming into contact with the demonic realm. Again, here, very interesting, the original term that's used there in the original language is actually the term sorcery. It's the term in the Greek pharmakia. Now, again, that should sound very familiar. We'll talk about more in a moment. It was a term, pharmakia, that was used to refer to the use of magical potions in the activity of sorcery to alter one's condition or their mental status through a drug or a potion that was indulged to help with the casting of spells or bringing people into contact with the realms of spirits and supernatural powers. The word pharmakia eventually became used in the Greek language to, of course, refer to medicines as well. And, of course, that's where, again, now we have our term today, pharmacy, pharmaceuticals, so we can understand that ultimately referred to all medicinal forms of use. But the word pharmakia originally was used to describe what was done in the realms of sorcery in the taking of certain potions for spells to alter your state of consciousness, to bring you into a different state of mind, to get in touch with an altered state of consciousness and even the spirit realms. Now, to me, that's very insightful because that is exactly what the abusing of drugs and such substances ultimately is from God's perspective. It is nothing other than the New Testament reference of sorcery. From God's perspective, abusing a medicine or any chemical substance, whether legal or illegal, is really just a practice of altering your condition or state of mind because you're taking that substance and abusing that substance to try and achieve an altered state of consciousness, 
to bring your mind or yourself into a different kind of state that you want to explore feeling a certain way and you are opening yourself up to very dark things to experiences people talk about you know hallucinations you're opening yourself up to the spirit realm as you enter into a different state of consciousness as you utilize and abuse substances and drugs in a modern form of potions it is just really new testament sorcery so understand abuse of legal or illegal drugs from god's perspective god says it's sorcery it's just a form of sorcery, and it is a very dangerous thing to begin to going down that road. From God's perspective, he does not see it as a disease. He doesn't see it as anything other than a selfish indulgence, an addiction to some substance that has just brought a person into engaging in sorcery and entering into realms that are dangerous and dark in their lives. The next term he uses in our list there, verse 20, is hatred which speaks of an attitude of just strong hostility towards another person, just completely despising them, your mindset inclined towards aggression, wanting harm towards them because you so greatly feel hostility, where you view yourself as a total enemy towards that person, and you want nothing other than what's worse for them. It's rooted, of course, hatred in the sinful nature due to our pride, due to our selfishness, our evil intentions, and lack of love. And something is always wrong when we find ourselves dealing with hatred within ourselves. That hostility is never from God. It is always from our sinful nature and the flesh. The next term he uses here in our list is contentions. And that word contention speaks of strife and discord, being inclined towards just starting fights enjoying, you might say, quarrels, being someone who's contentious in attitude when they interact with others. Somebody who just tends to always pick a fight, it's almost as if they enjoy creating quarrels, stirring up arguments, debating with people. It's almost as if they're prompted in their arrogance to always need to be right. They want to disprove other people. It's that struggle of that extreme competitive spirit that's sinful even within us, to always want to defeat people, to always want to struggle and win. And it just disregards what's best for others because there's this perverseness in our sin nature of a contentious attitude where you can find a distorted pleasure in rivalry or just conquering and defeating people in some way. It's the mindset that is opposite of the spirit who causes a person to want to be humble in their interactions with others and exercise harmony. Contentious is exactly the opposite. It's a work of the sin nature of the flesh. He mentions also jealousies, which describes being just angry or upset that we don't have what another does. And jealousy is a sin because we can be angry that we don't have the same possession as someone else. Maybe we're angry and upset that we don't have the same position that another person is enjoying, or maybe we're jealous of their ability and what they can do that we can't do. Sometimes we can be jealous of some privilege or opportunity someone else is enjoying. You're single and you're jealous of others who are married, or maybe you're married and you're jealous of those who are single, and we can become jealous of someone's status in life. And jealousy stems from that sinful tendency due to really just a lack of contentment and a greed for wanting something better for ourselves that we're not currently enjoying. And it makes us forget the blessings we have and just yearn to have what other people do in a way where we become jealous and sinful in so doing. 
The next thing he mentions in our list here in verse 20, after jealousies, is outbursts of wrath. That is a reference to just uncontrolled anger in one's behavior or words. The term that's used there, thumos in the Greek, speaks of a violent movement of wind or air in an upward fashion very quickly. So it just speaks of an explosiveness. That's the idea of the term there. Being explosive in violent anger, we might say like a volcanic eruption. And again, if we think about the illustration of the eruption of a volcano, when a volcano erupts, it is just super fast, super violent, and it brings nothing but what? Just devastation of everything that's impacted in its path. Well, uh, the uncontrollable torrent of damage from a volcano, that's the illustration here. Some people are like volcanic in their anger. They just have an outburst of wrath, like a volcanic eruption. They just verbally can be so hurtful in an outburst of wrath in verbal words, in the way that they speak, yelling or mean or nasty in their spirit, in their tone, intimidating and hurting people, or even just volcanic eruption and outburst of wrath in just the horrific and harsh, painful words that they use towards someone. And sadly, outbursts of wrath also categorizes becoming just abusive in anger and harming people. Violent, domestic violence, abuse, whatever that may be, such things, they're never justified in God's sight. There's never a basis for such in an outburst of wrath to harm and destroy and ruin people's lives because we don't channel our anger in a proper way. It is simply sinful behavior, the Bible says. Always wrong. The next thing he mentions in our list going on is selfish ambitions. That is being motivated to do what is self-serving in our attitudes and really in all of our actions. Striving to do what is in my own best interest. That's what selfish ambition is. That you're ambitious to do what's best for yourself. And so the things that you do are driven for your own self-advancement. Looking out really for what is going to be best for you in the given situation, what's going to benefit you in the end. And sometimes this is done in obvious ways, just very obvious self-centered behavior. But selfish ambition can kind of be one of those sneaky things that's sort of hidden and done in kind of a manipulative approach where someone kind of in a very sneaky, manipulative way is functioning in selfish ambition and they're kind of acting as if nothing's going on, but really they are a very selfishly ambitious person and just kind of manipulating people in the way that they're behaving, but yet in God's sight it's sinful and wrong. The next work of the flesh he mentions going on in our list here, verse 20, is dissensions. And that word dissension is a term that speaks of standing apart from another in your difference of opinion. The idea there is you strongly disagree, but your strong disagreement leads to a strong division. Because you so strongly disagree, you show your disagreement by causing disunity and separating yourself from another, sowing discord in the relationship or sowing discord among relationships because you're causing dissension among people causing dissension in a family, causing dissension in friendships, causing dissension in the church. Interesting, Proverbs 6 mentions six things that God hates, and one of the things God mentions that he hates is it says those who sow discord among the brethren. 
That is, people who cause dissension. In the Greek culture, it was a term that spoke of creating party divisions, interesting, and even starting political revolts. That was the term that was used originally and how it was used. Those who encourage pulling people away in resistance towards one another and saying and doing what brought division rather than bringing harmony among people. It's an attitude and behavior that is not of the Lord. It is something that is motivated from our pride, from our lack of love towards people, and caring more about being right and having our way rather than creating peace among people. It is a work of the flesh, and it is basically nothing other than what we call a good old-fashioned troublemaker. And that's what this speaks of here, those who cause dissensions, it's a work of the flesh. The final term he uses there in verse 20 is the term heresies. Now, we often think of heresy as just unhealthy teaching, it contradicts sound doctrine. Your term may be translated there in your Bible, factions or division. The original term heresy actually meant to believe something so strongly is true and right that you form a party and you rally others around your party. So we see ultimately how it became those who became heretics and brought heresy in to pull people away from good doctrine. But the term really just speaks of creating factions and divisions where you rally a party to support your idea and you want a following. Goes very hand in hand with the word dissensions above it. Romans 16 warns this way Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, contrary to the doctrine that you've learned, and avoid them. He says, Those who do such, that is, cause divisions, they don't serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, that is, their own appetite. And by smooth words and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the simple. So the Bible warns those causing divisions and dissensions using smooth words, just be careful of this. These are people who are very self-serving and sinful, even if they're doing such in the midst of God's people. Now Paul goes on in verse 21 to mention a few more things in this list before he wraps up. The next thing that he mentions as a work of the flesh is envy. Now, you may think envy is the same as jealousy. The word envy actually speaks of something stronger than jealousy because to be jealous is to be upset that you don't have the same thing as someone else. To be envious actually speaks of being deeply angry because somebody else has it and you want it. So to be envious is to feel animosity towards someone because they're enjoying something that you want to be enjoying and so you actually despise them because of it. You actually feel deep animosity because they're able to experience what you want and you're not currently able to. And the Bible says, again, that's sinful. That's a work of the flesh. He then mentions next in our list the word murders, as if we'd have to know that's a work of the flesh, something that's sinful. And again, keep in mind, when you read the word murder, the word murder, and let me just say the teaching of Scripture as a whole in a context— It's not referring to killing someone if you're serving in combat in war. It's not a reference to killing someone under the line of duty as a police officer, given authority by God to exercise such in the culture. It's not even referring to taking someone's life in an act of self-defense. If you are being threatened, then you have to use self-defense. The word murder speaks of cruelly the ending the life of another person for your own self-interest, 
that is because of your hatred or that you are just cruelly taking the innocent life of another person for no justifiable reason. That's what the word murder speaks of. And murder, taking the life of an innocent person, is never acceptable in the sight of God, who's the author of all life. Again, in this category, we cannot be naive to overlook what today we call abortion. Because in essence, from God's perspective, that is the the death of an innocent life. It is one person choosing, for whatever reason, their fear or their selfish actions, to murder the life of an innocent child in the womb that didn't get a chance to decide for themselves. And from God's perspective, that is murder. It is wrong. It is sinful. Now, is there forgiveness for those who have done such? Absolutely. Jesus wants to heal and forgive anyone who's made such a mistake. But from God's perspective, it's viewed as murder. Again, Jesus even, again, spoke of how this issue of anger and murder begins in the heart attitude. Jesus said, you have heard it says in the Old Testament, he says, Matthew 5, that you shall not commit murder. But I say, he says, whoever has anger in their heart towards their brother is already becoming guilty of such in judgment before God. Again, God sees murderous intentions even in our heart before we carry out the action. God sees much deeper even than the physical actions itself. He mentions next in our list here the term drunkenness. And drunkenness refers to excessive indulgence of alcohol that alters your normal state of mind. That is the overindulgence of alcohol that diminishes your capacity to function as you typically and normally would be able to when you were completely sober and not under the influence of the alcohol. So simply drinking alcohol to the point where you start to become, listen, even slightly impaired. It's not talking about just falling down drunk where you become impaired in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions, because the influence of alcohol is affecting the way that you're now making choices, behaving, or speaking. That's drunkenness. And look, opinions differ on the subject of drinking alcohol, but the Bible is very clear in regards to drunkenness, that it is sinful that it is completely wrong. It is wrong and sinful and a work of our selfish nature to just misbehave before God to, again, alter our condition because of our enjoyment of drinking alcohol. And again, what is the motive? What's the reason why we're drinking the alcohol in the first place? God says drunkenness is a work of the flesh. He then mentions, lastly in this list, revelries. And that word just means wild partying behaving in uncontrollable ways with no restraints. Interesting that he puts drunkenness and revelry side by side because typically those two tend to go hand in hand. First Peter 4 says, We've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. Yep, that's right there in the Bible, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, notice with me here in verse 21, Paul concludes this list with those three words saying, and the like. In other words, he's saying, and the things like I just listed. When Paul says, here's this long list, and then he says, as a sort of a, an 
a summary term or an etc. to the list. He says, and the like. He's indicating that he did not think this was a complete and an exhaustive list of all sinful activities. What Paul was saying is, here's a pretty clear list if you need such a list. And he says, but and things just like this, they as well are works of the flesh and the sinful nature as well. Again, so important that we would never try and look at this list and find some sinful activity or behavior, and just because we don't find it in the list there, think that we're free to indulge it. Paul recognized, yes, this is a specific list, but it's not complete. It's not an exhaustive list of everything that is sinful. What Paul's trying to say is, look, I think I've given you enough in this list here as a bearing to understand these things specifically and anything like these things, they're sinful. They're works of the flesh, which are evident to see. Now, after naming all these specific things as sinful, look how he concludes verse 21. He says, of which I've tell you beforehand, just as I've told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So notice what Paul does as he comes to the conclusion. He warns now of the danger of being self-deceived in regards to living in an ongoing practice of these sinful things mentioned in these verses and living in those practices and then wrongly assuming that you're in right relationship with God. This is what Paul is cautioning about. He says in our verse, I've told you these things before. In other words, he's saying, I'm not telling you something new. I've already told you these things many times. I'm warning you now once again, those who are truly saved will begin to live differently. They will serve God. They won't find themselves constantly pursuing their sin nature. And thus, in heaviness, he gives this strong warning in verse 21. He says that those who practice such things, that is the sins listed above, will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, those living in an ongoing life practice of these sins are living in direct rebellion to God, in direct rebellion to God's will, to what God has clearly said, these are wrong things in my sight. Those who can practice such continuously are living in rebellion to God. They're indicating they're not in relationship with God. They're living in rebellion to him. They're indicating they're not a child of God because they don't want to please God. They're defiantly practicing in an ongoing way things that they know would dishonor God and his authority. And so they're not true citizens of heaven. And God in his love, notice, does not want anyone to be self-deceived. So God in his love gives this heavy warning that one not be deceived in their spiritual condition or their eternal destiny. That's why he speaks in verse 21 saying they will inherit the kingdom of God. That term inheriting the kingdom of God is a reference to entering into heaven. That's what God's children do. Ultimately, we inherit being with God in heaven. We inherit his kingdom. We're in his presence together with him. So that's a reference to entering into heaven. Notice the Holy Spirit says... In God's word, those who practice these things, these sins, in verse 19 to 21, or the like, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying they will not enter into heaven. The reason is they are not in a right condition spiritually that it requires to enter into heaven. The continual practice of such sins is the evidence that their condition is not right spiritually 
before God. And notice, pay attention with me here as we conclude, he does not say those who have committed these sins will not enter into heaven. That's not what he's saying. That is, those who've committed these sins either in their past, before they were walking with Christ, or those who've committed these sins in a time of weakness and struggle as a follower of Christ. The truth is, we've all rebelliously lived in our past and committed plenty of these things in this list prior to when we were walking with Jesus. And the truth is as well, we have all, even as followers of Christ, had times of weakness and failure when we were not walking in the Spirit when we weren't submitting to the lordship of Jesus and we wrongly fulfill the desires of our flesh, even as believers, we all still stumble at times. We all still fail and sin and we battle with the flesh and the spirit. But if we sin, we feel strong conviction about it. We feel miserable when we're doing it. And we find ourselves wanting to confess and repent and ultimately turn to seek to do what's right in our primary way of life and general practice is doing what pleases the Lord. The language here clearly differentiates for us. Notice what he says. He says those in danger of not entering heaven are those who practice such things. Those who live in an ongoing practice as a lifestyle. Those who can continually live this way and not cease from participating in these things, and it doesn't bother them. Those who can, as a lifestyle in a habitual way, characterize their lifestyle with these practices, and it does not bother them, and they don't cease from doing such, a life of sinful practice reveals spiritual defiance to God. And more than that, it reveals that they're not in right relationship with God. And the Bible therefore says such people will not enter the kingdom of God. It doesn't say that they might not enter. It says they will not enter. Very clear. God's clear. There's no confusion on the matter. God knows the root of every person inwardly. And the fruit is just what we manifest to make it evident outwardly by the way that we live out our lives and what our ongoing practice is. And an ongoing practice of a person living in sin indicates, God says, that person is not in right relationship with me and they're not ready to enter into heaven. Now, since this section is dependent on kind of the idea of the paragraph, Glance with me just over to verse 24 as we conclude. Notice Paul says there, verse 24, those who are Christ, that is those who belong to Christ, have crucified, put to death the flesh with its passions and desires. What Paul's saying there is those in a relationship with Jesus want to put to death the sinful desires and passions of their fleshly nature. Those who are right with Christ and submitted to his lordship realize Jesus died for those sins in that list. Jesus suffered for those things. So I want to do everything I can to stay away from those things. And in gratitude towards him, I don't want to indulge those things. So the Christian manifests their right relationship with Christ by the fact that the mark of a true believer is they cannot be continuously comfortable living in an ongoing practice of sin. They can't stay there. They may struggle, they may wrestle, but ultimately they come back to a life practice of following Christ and walking in the Spirit, not living in a continuous practice of following their sin nature with defiance towards God. Now, that truth, look, that truth either encourages you 
or that truth here perhaps alarms you to evaluate your condition. That's something that you have to wrestle out between you and the Holy Spirit.